Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Professor Cecilia Mascolo is at the cutting edge of research into machine learning, devising programmes which enable computers to act intelligently when dealing with data. Cecilia's work has recently been focused on a project called COVID Sounds. Linda Ness talked to Professor Cecilia Mascolo. Cecilia Mascolo is a professor of mobile systems at the Department of Computer Science and Technology at Cambridge University. She's also a fellow of Jesus College. Cecilia ranks in the top 100 computer scientists in the UK and in 2016 was listed by Networking Women as one of the 10 women in networking communications that you should know. She is co-director of the Centre of Mobile Wearable Systems and Augmented Intelligence. Cecilia has a particular interest in the study of mobile systems and in machine learning. Her recent research on audio-based mobile health diagnostics is leading to the ability to detect COVID-19 by the sound of your breathing and coughing. Thank you very much for joining us on Women Making Waves today, Cecilia. Thank you for having me. That's a great introduction there. (laughs) Was I correct when I was talking about that last bit about the COVID-19? You want to be able to detect COVID when someone breathes, coughs, talks? Yeah, talks. Um, I I thought your introduction was almost complete. We are hoping that voice also has some characters and and features that we could recognize for for COVID uh, diagnostics. Uh, So it's not just the cough, it's not just the breathing. That's really interesting. Let's come back to that in a little bit. Let's start at the beginning. Let's go back in time. When you were young, where, where were you brought up? I was brought up in Italy, in uh, Reggio Emilia, which is a city close to Parma, where they produce Parma ham and Parmesan. (laughs) Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Is is it quite a big city? Similar size to Cambridge, really. Okay, nice. Were you geeky as a kid? (laughs) Because I'm kind of assuming you're a little bit geeky Uh, with with the job that you do. Were you you like that when you were young? I like my books and I like my math. I guess at the time we didn't have, I mean, that that reveals kind of my age, but computers were not something you would have in your house when I was uh, very young. Oh, me too. (laughs) um, Yeah, define geeky. (laughs) But I did like my books. You did like your books and you were into science, presumably. Yeah, I, I actually had an encyclopedia with planets and I was looking almost every day at the planets, planets descriptions and uh, was fascinated by that. So maybe a little bit geeky for girls at that time, presumably. It's always interesting to find out what people were like when they were younger and you can start to see how they got to where they get to. You came over to the UK quite a few years ago, I think, to London initially. What drove that move? So I decided to start my PhD in Italy, but after a while I realized that I wanted to explore abroad uh, because uh, collaborators were abroad. So during my PhD, I went for one year to the States, to the Washington University in St. Louis. And then while I was seeking for other opportunities, uh, I came across uh, other opportunities in London. So I went to UCL as well. So it was part of my PhD initially and then decided to stay. And um, I've been here ever since moving around uh, from London to Cambridge. What was your initial degree in when you you were studying in Italy? Computer science. In computer Um, science. Yeah, the interesting bit of computer science in Italy is that it was a 
spin-off from maths. And maths in Italy is a degree that people take if they want to go into teaching. So we actually, uh, because of this uh, chain of things, we had 50-50 women and men in, in computer science, which was very comforting at the time, very, very comfortable. That's quite interesting, actually, because I would have assumed that the majority would have been men in computer science, actually. It seems to be very much STEM subjects have, in the past, were very much male-dominated. It was the case that the information engineering, which spawned off from engineering, was a male-dominated subject. But the particular degree in computer science, which was a little bit more linked to math and theoretical at the time it was uh, it was born in Italy, was uh, from maths. And maths is the subject that you would study if you want to teach in high school. And many women want to teach in high school. So, yeah. Was that originally your plan, teaching? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom is a is a teach was a teacher, and uh, and that was the closest thing I had as a as a profession I possibly could have liked, and it turns out to be close enough because I'm still teaching. Yes, of course, of course. Now, obviously, your job is very technical. Most people have heard about artificial intelligence, and my understanding is that machine learning takes the data and enables the computer to learn from it. Is that correct? <laughs> I think at a high level, this is correct. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that definition. <laughs> How did you get into that particular field? Because it's quite niche. So my interests have always been in applied computer science, so trying to understand what we can do with computer science. And so I've worked with lots of disciplines through this, and, and this is the beauty of computer science. I work with architects, uh, vets, and zoologists, psychologists, psychiatric doctors, and, and now more and more doctors. So, so and, and social scientists too. And in those cases, when you apply computer science, uh, the first thing that they have is this big question that you need to try to answer in their discipline. And often the, the step in between is having data from system, mobile systems and, and, and information, computer science systems that need to be interpreted. And, and that's how I got there because now we have tons of data from these devices and you need to interpret them to make sense of them uh, so that you can advance the science with, with, with other disciplines as well. So is your approach going out and seeking requirements and then developing something or do you develop something and then look for, in other words, do you find a solution and then look look for something to apply it to or is it the other way around? Do you listen to vets and, and other people and go, ah, oh, okay, we'll go back to the drawing board and we'll try and design something around what you need? I have a few interesting stories around this. I don't think I can give a single answer. It, it, there, there have been a few cases where I had an idea, a technical idea of a thing that I can do and that I had no use for. And I started talking to uh, colleagues. And in one particular case, we started talking to neuroscientists. So I Googled around and found a couple of neuroscientists, emailed them. They happily talked to me. And and one of them, and, and this happened twice, but I'll tell you this story. Um, he, he listened to my idea and listened to what I was doing and then suggested that he had a better idea given what I was doing. And we came up with a much better idea of things to do around neuroscience and the use of uh, technology for Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can go, in, in some other cases, some people know in my general area come to me with, with their problem, their, their domain science, and say, oh, can you solve it? In which case, it, it's more of a matter of going from the, the idea down to what 
technically we can do to solve it. So I guess it could be both. That's really interesting because I, I always wonder what comes first, you know, the, 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 the technical idea or the requirement. But it sounds like you work together with people and, and sometimes it, it can work either way. It can it can work either way. And I think I have examples. About, I've, I've thought a lot about this problem. I, I, I think it can be either. Yeah. Now, well, lots of us use Fitbits, running devices uh, and things like that. Where do you see the future of wearable devices when it comes to our health? Do you see a pathway forward? Do you have a a nirvana that we could work towards that would be absolutely brilliant? So I think we'll see more and more of these devices and the, their precision and their prices will be driven, uh, well, prices will be driven down, precision hopefully will be driven driven up by, by experience. However, I don't think we're quite there and we are we kind of have gained the trust of the users in most of the cases. In, in some of the cases, you know, the tracking of our heart or the tracking of our sleep are still very approximate. They can give a, an indication, but they are very approximate. But we, we can do so much better. But I think there is a lot more that will be done in future years. Also because, um, you know, healthcare as it is, uh, once scale, we, we need to get help to do the simple things more automatically so that doctors can be freed and do things that only people can do. And those, I have no doubt that there is space for doctors. I don't. I don't buy in the idea of artificial intelligence substituting our clinicians. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But I hope in a future where these will be instruments that they can use and they can help, can get help from. Uh, and I, I think that's that's my dream. <laughs> so the day could come potentially where we are wearing various things about our body, which we might not think about too much. And then you got a call from the doctor saying, a bit worried about you because we think that you are, that your blood sugar is too low or that whatever, your heart rate is, has been too high for the past week. That That's something that could we could potentially be doing in a few years time. I think I don't like the idea of a doctor being allowed to prompt you that way. I would prefer, in fact, that the data about you stays close to you so that perhaps a, a machine learn or something that is uh, less so less personal could tell you this is what i found if you want contact a doctor and that's more of an acceptable position that, that i would accept i i would i wouldn't like this big brother my doctor sitting there looking at my data without me knowing and you're right not, <laughs> i think we 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 don't have to compromise on that no i think you're right people are very worried about that kind of thing aren't they the covid sounds project. That just sound really, really interesting. Tell us more about that. We mentioned it at the beginning. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about that. Uh, we are looking for users. So I'll first describe what it is and maybe we can advertise it and hope that people uh, can contribute their data on, on, on this particular project. So the fact that coughing, breathing and voice could be indicative of disease is something that has been determined by clinicians in many pathologies. The fact that perhaps having the data of this kind and automatically apply technologies such as machine learning to do this diagnosis is something that is already happening again for some of the clinical pathologies. 
And so our idea is we have launched this data collection. Essentially, it's a, it's an app that you can install on your phone and would ask you a few questions about yourself, your symptoms, as well as your medical history. It also asks if you have tested for COVID because uh, we, we could use that kind of ground truth data. And, and then it asks you to contribute your coughing. So we ask you to cough three times into your phone, to breathe a few times into your phone and to read, read this, a sentence that we display on the phone on the screen. And then this data comes back to us. And at the moment we have collected more than 9,000 users data. And we are trying to apply machine learning to see if we can distinguish COVID tested patient users from people who are healthy. Yeah, that, that's the basic idea. At the moment, the more data, the better, because obviously being in this crowdsource, we, we often have samples that are noisy, that are not useful. So we welcome data. If you go on covid-19-sounds.org, uh, you can find all the information and the apps um, that are available on Android and iOS. It's utterly fascinating. And it, it, it sounds to me, when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, wow, this could be huge because, okay, COVID's the big thing at the moment. But potentially, if your voice, if you're breathing, if, if you're able to detect illnesses, could that be you could detect when somebody was going to have a heart attack or you could detect other symptoms? So I, I am not the only researcher working on this. Uh, there are a few researchers who made quite advanced steps in trying to do that. Uh, a colleague of mine, University of Washington, Shyam Golakota, has a paper out where he's using 991 in the US calls data, and he has analyzed those calls, and he ha is able to detect features of heart attacks, agonal breathing, which could help in this sense. So yes, there are other researchers working on this. The, the main thing is having data. The data we are collecting through the COVID project also has a medical history, ask people if they suffer from other illnesses. So in theory, if we are lucky and collect a large data set, we might be able to study other respiratory diseases through the same data set. We also ask users to send data every couple of days. So one interesting aspect of this is progression of disease. Not many people uh, would have had the data to do this in large scale like we do. And uh, we hope to look into that for COVID, but also for other diseases. This non-invasive way of detecting illnesses just sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely brilliant. What's a day in your life like? In, in the position that you're in, Cecilia, what's what's a, a normal day or is there not a normal day? <laughs> uh, is, is that pre-COVID or post-COVID? Ah, um, you see, there's a question. Okay, right, let, let's talk about the moment. So at the moment, which is, you know, very, very different, I guess. What's a day like? So in terms of types of things, it, it's probably very similar. I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm deputy head of department until mid next year, which means I also have a number of meetings related to the running of the department and helping people use the department better. As you can imagine, with COVID, we had all sorts of questions related to, to how we run the department, let people in and how we do exams. So there's there's a lot of that happening during the week, or there has been, and meetings to, with my team. So I meet uh, the researchers in my team, each of them, once a week. And we have a group meeting once a week and we are running a seminar series now because um, of COVID, uh, we don't have to invite the speakers to travel. We can run a seminar series with lots of um, speakers from all over the world online and it's going really well, I think. So I try to always keep some time to uh, work 
Um, so it's not meeting, meeting, meeting all the time. There is perhaps a, a morning where I have lots of meetings and then an afternoon where I read and, and consider and write papers and uh, do the things I need to do and yeah. um, time for the mind. I like running. So I try to run three times a week and I do some other exercises because, and this, this is something I've introduced because I, I was cycling to work almost every day and, and now I don't do that. So I introduce some more um, gymnastics and aerobics things at home to complement because I, I sit all day and in front of the screen, it's really bad. It's a real problem. I'm finding that's a problem as well, actually. I've been going out for walks at lunchtime and in the morning before, because I, I tend to be sitting in front of a computer the whole time, which is really bad for you. Really bad. And the thing that, that changed uh, from COVID is that I, um, because I'm home, I uh, I have a family. I have a 17-year-old daughter and a partner. And, uh, you know, we now lunch together, which means that we also need to eat at lunch, which means I have to prepare lunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of us have. I'm not the only one able to do this, but um, yes, that's that's the additional thing. Do you not find though the quality of life has been quite nice since we've been kind of at home? I've really enjoyed that aspect. Actually, no traveling and and just having. Fo- I've got far more time. I don't know about you. I've been doing more cooking and stuff like that. I've I've always liked cooking, but I I do like working from home. I always did keep one or two days at home. The fact that there are more means that I, I need to complement it, I, you know, not moving. Um, I, I don't like not moving, so I've added um, movement, <laughs> more running, more exercise. But I do I do like my home and working from home and uh, meeting my family for lunch is something that uh, I find uh, very, very nice. You were saying earlier about the online seminars um, and the fact that you, you can actually get a lot more speakers and a lot more people involved because there's no travelling. Do you think that's something that we'll maybe learn from and, and do more of going forward. I kind of hope we do. Yeah, I think this is here to stay. I, I don't think we will change that. It, it's so good. Um, and I think, you know, the, the difficulty is that usually when we invite a speaker, uh, they would have a chance to meet one-to-one with yeah. some of the researchers. This part, uh, we will have to work towards finding a replacement for that is completely lost at the moment we usually yeah we have group rooms but um but but it's not the same it's not um, the, the talk itself uh, i think is fantastic the way it is yeah yeah no i agree there's some aspects of the changes that we've had to rush in at short notice that have been really really good but you're right that the human relationship d- does suffer a little bit um you work with lots of phd students do you see, I know I touched on this earlier, but are you seeing more and more women coming into STEM subjects? Well, my experience is since I started working more and more towards applications, I've seen more and more women come into my group. So I don't know if the bias is simply um, the shift that I've made or the fact that there are more women around in, in the subject. I, I, I hope we are training more women, but um, I think uh, we still have a problem in primary school uh, regarding STEMs, uh, in the UK, certainly. Yeah. Do you, well, I wonder what could be done about that. It, it, is it something to do with getting girls more interested in the subject earlier? I don't know. I've seen it on my own daughter, and um, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe the, with the science, perhaps the lack of role model is uh, impacting here. There are very few, you know, they're coming through, but as there are very few, then, of course, this percolates, and then who is teaching computer science? Well, mainly it's men, mm-hmm. um, and so that 
kind of uh, doesn't help. Um, I think we are reinforcing that um, concept more and more, um, but um, it's, I think it's still a big problem. But your your 17-year-old, is she interested in science? Science, yes. Uh, she wants to be a clinician, a doctor. Uh, Does she? Computer science, absolutely not. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a no-go. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes... The problem is if the role model is the mother, it works in the completely opposite direction. My daughter has no interest in doing radio work either. <laughs> yeah, it might be it. Um, yeah, she's a people person and uh, she, she really would like to be a doctor that has a mindset uh, for, for a long time. She had this. Cecilia Mascolo, thank you very much for joining us today on Women Making Waves and good luck with the COVID-19 project. Thank you very much for inviting me and having such an entertaining You're very welcome. I really enjoyed talking to Professor Cecilia Mascolo. I thought she was fascinating. The work she's doing is absolutely phenomenal. I love the fact that she's working on apps which we can wear, which, you know, which which are for our health. I, I love that whole idea. But of course, the fact she's also working on COVID sounds at the moment, that is phenomenal because that's really impact. It's the, it's the thing of the day, isn't it? It's impacting all of us. We all can't wait to have immunity to this awful illness, but also to know if we've got it. I thought I might have had it earlier in the year. I'll probably never actually know, you know. Mm. But no, you're right. I, I, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I think this whole new phenomenon, though, is app isn't new to us. I think everyone seems to be getting into apps now more than ever before. But there is that element of what Cecilia was talking about, about precision and pricing. And I suppose the more this app becomes much more intuitive and much more um, gaining a bit of knowledge and everything. More people want to use it because this is the way forward, isn't it? We need to be tested. We need to know where we are. So the tracking part is quite crucial. Um, You can download the app and what they're doing at the moment is they are researching. So they're putting this thing together. It's, It's not working just now. They're still building it, but they need thousands and thousands of people taking part in this in order to get a database of what the thing might sound like and see if they can find common features, I suppose, in the breathing, in the way that people are talking. But they they need to analyse all of these voices. So I would urge everybody, actually, if you're listening, to go along to the website covid-19-sounds.com org, And you can download the app from there. It's really, really simple to do. All you have to do is upload short recordings of coughing and breathing um, and report symptoms so you can help the researchers and it will allow them to build this amazing app. But you were right. What she was saying about wearable technology is she just sees it getting better and better. This is the more commercial apps, I suppose. They will just get better and better. And the price point should of course, come down. Yeah, and as you say, it is free and it's worth doing. We're all used to these these apps now. And my own son as well has absolutely enjoys analysing his sleep. And I think that's the we I think it's a really important thing, isn't it? Now if we've got the the equipment, we've got it on our phone, it's really easy to do. We should be absolutely helping this whole research into making sure we are really much more aware of COVID nineteen. 
Yes, and let's not be afraid that people are trying to steal our data when you're, you know, when you're taking part in these health initiatives, because that's not what they're trying to do. They are trying to make things better for everybody. And, and let's all stop being a little bit paranoid about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And the whole point, I mean, one of the things that's come out of this awful pandemic and lockdown is the technology has just gone from strength to strength and we want it to work for us we want to be able to use it in the best way that helps us so this is fantastic really lovely to be able to listen to cecilia today women making waves on cambridge 105 radio 